Let's pray before we get started. Father, I just pray you be with me, uh, with us, as we study your word and, and tackle a very serious topic today, Lord. And we're serious about you, and that means that sometimes we have to deal with serious things. Often, we have to deal with serious things. We love you so much, Lord. We look for heaven. We look forward to being with you. We're with you now, though, Lord. Your Holy Spirit is here, as you always are, when two or more gathered. And we thank you for being in our midst, Lord. Help us to love one another, Lord. Keep us safe. Protect us spiritually. Protect us physically. Help us to walk through life with you as our shepherd. Let us study your word this morning. In your name, amen. So I was broken up a little this weekend. I read a tweet from a woman that, uh, that's Twitter for those of you who are over whatever age that you don't know what Twitter is. I guess it's popular now. We had a president who used it a lot, so I assume most people know what it is. Um, so anyway, she's tweeting. She talks about how she left evangelicalism after being a Christian her whole life and that her husband kind of helped her through that or led the way or whatever. Her husband's like a famous YouTube personality, performer, popular guy on YouTube, and her husband had recently deconstructed his faith very publicly. He and his, his YouTube partner had done that kind of very publicly, kind of walked away from the faith, had been Christians their whole life, had been, you know, I don't know, Youth for Christ, just, you know, all through college, all through whatever, and then just kind of, they left the faith. And, uh, and now she has two. And, I mean, besides me thinking about the duty of her husband to have led their home spiritually and the responsibility he's going to have for drawing his wife away into lies, besides that, it just breaks my heart because all these people who reply to the tweet, you know, it's all congratulations, it's all encouragement, it's all, oh, yeah, girl, you go. You don't need to be around those Christians, you know, whatever. Some people were saying, hey, I hope you find your way back, or hey, I hope you find faith in Christ, but a lot of them were, were not that way. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Um, I actually really like her husband. He's a funny guy. His partner's a funny guy. Uh, it was very sad to hear when both of them had kind of deconstructed their faith about a year, year or two ago, and said they were basically no longer Christians, or at least not Christians in the sense that I would use the term. And as I see all these people rallying behind this tweet, and I think about what's happening in our culture, not just outside of the church where we're dealing with unbelievers and we're in the marketplace of ideas and we're bringing Jesus Christ and somebody else is bringing something else, but that it's coming into the church, that it's coming into the church and trying to pull people out of the church, trying to pull people out of the protection of the church the love of the brothers and sisters, the protection of the Holy Spirit that you have by being part of the body of Christ, my heart breaks. White lies, as we've been talking about, are not a joking matter. They're very, very serious. As we've studied before, ideas have consequences, and those consequences can be very, very serious. These people also have children, and I wonder what's happening with them as their parents go through this deconstruction process. Listen, I love people. It's not my desire to see people deceived and walking a path of brokenness and death, but that is what's happening, and it's serious. And we cannot just sit here and have our worship services and do our thing and not get serious about what's happening to people in the church, to people outside the church, with the lies that society is bringing. It's our responsibility to have a reason for the hope that's within and be able to state that reason clearly, and to be able to live that out clearly. 
These people are going down a, a wide path, as Jesus said, that leads to destruction. But they're not just going down it themselves. They're advertising. They're promoting. Misery loves company, as they say. Now, I don't need myself personally, I don't need you or anyone else to confirm to me that what I believe about Jesus Christ is true. I know Jesus. He's been my God and my King and has shown himself trustworthy my whole life. I don't need anybody to assure me of it. I don't need to be assured that Jesus is alive. I don't need to be assured that Jesus loves me. I believe it. And I advertise for Jesus and I promote. I definitely do because I believe he'll save you too. I believe that you can have that joy, then I want to share it with you. But there's a difference and a different kind of advertising and promoting going on with those who are sort of pushing things like progressive Christianity as we've been talking about and some of these other deconstruction ideas. They're promoting a different thing. It, it has a different feel to it. It feels like they're selling something different. And it's heavy in our culture. And while I don't need you to believe what I believe in order for me, for me to feel okay about believing it, it seems like they do. Like they need you to believe what they believe or else they don't feel comfortable believing it. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody like that, but they're trying to kind of pull you over. If, I, if you're cool with it too, I don't feel as bad about what I'm doing. When you're doing the right thing, when you're doing the truth, you don't have to do that. You can stand alone if you have to, you and the Lord. But when you're doing the other thing, you've got to go on Twitter. You've got to get everybody to say, oh, yeah, you go, you go, boy, you go, girl, you do it. We're with you. That has been the, the way that culture has been running now for a while. Nobody is okay with actual tolerance. Everything has to be affirmation. You can't just be okay with somebody deconstructing their faith. You've got to affirm it or you're out. They need it. They need it. They give me the, the feel. I, I don't know their hearts, okay? I don't know anybody's hearts. I don't pretend to. But they give me the feel that they're not okay believing what they now believe without a big party of people who believe it with them. The way of the Christ follower is to learn and study the Bible, the scriptures. To let the Bible transform us. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, okay? We're trying to be transformed. The Bible is pushing up against us, right? Sometimes it's hitting us pretty hard. Bible thumping isn't something I do to the Bible. The Bible thumps me. That's how that works. Just came up with that. Make a mug, okay? T-shirt. Put it on Etsy. It's all yours. That's, that's what happens. The Bible thumps me. That's the way a believer is. We're challenged to grow, to change our minds, to renew our minds and our hearts from the things that we think we want to the things that we know God wants. If you've been a parent, you kind of know how this goes. Your child says, I don't know how many times you've ever tried to tell a little girl no more cookies when she wants another cookie. It doesn't go well all the time, right? Because she's thinking, I'm good with another cookie, right? And you're thinking, you're not going to be good with another cookie. A, you're going to be running all around, then you're going to throw up, you're not going to eat your dinner, 
The whole thing, right? So you say no cookies. Jerry Seinfeld used to say, you know, they tell me, don't eat another cookie, you're going to ruin your appetite. He said, I finally realized there's always another one coming after. It's always another appetite. So sometimes now I'll just eat a lot of cookies and tell my mom, I'm ruining my appetite right now. You know? Anyway, it's a totally off thing. <laughs> just remember that about Jerry. All right. Point is, if your little son or daughter doesn't want to go to sleep at night and you tell them to go to sleep, they think you're wrong and they're right. I'm okay. I can handle it. I can stay up till 2 in the morning. You know that if that happens, you're going to have a very unhealthy child at the end of the day. So you tell them, Christians are like that. We're the children and recognize ourselves as the children. And God is God and we recognize him as God. When he says go to bed, while we might want to stay up, we say you're right. That's the, that's the humility of a Christ follower. You shape me, Lord. The Bible thumps me. You transform me. I come in, I read the scripture, and it transforms me. It pushes up against me. It shows me, oh, that's not good. I need to do this. Instead of the opposite, which is looking to transform the Bible into your image. We should hear things that make us uncomfortable. If you're reading the Bible or you're coming here and nothing is making you uncomfortable, nothing's pushing up against you, nothing's giving you any kind of uh, feeling that maybe you should be changing some things, uh, you're reading the Bible wrong. And you're sleeping in church. Because if it's pushing up as me as hard as it's pushing up against me, and I'm worse than you, but not that much worse, it's pushing up against you too. It should be. That's what it looks like to be a Christ follower. That's what it looks like. But there's another way. There's another way. People can decide, instead of letting the Bible transform them, to find people that will tell them they're okay how they are. Right? Or they'll change the scriptures or tweak them just a little bit. There's another kind of teacher and another kind of teaching. It's the kind you want to hear. Here's the two types of teaching in, in one little passage of Scripture. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, they're right in the chairs in front of you. Feel free to take one of those home if you don't have a, one at home. It says this, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Don't forget that because later we're going to talk about hell. So um, he will be judging. Listen, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. That's the first kind of teaching. That's the kind Christians are looking for. Convince me, rebuke me, exhort me, help me. That's what the scripture should be doing. I know that I'm messed up. I'm looking to become more like Jesus. But there's another kind of teaching. We just keep reading. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't endure the good teaching, right? But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves, teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What's going to happen in the ministry? You'll have to endure afflictions. Because the other people are heaping up. It's not just one teacher out there. They're heaping them up. Give me more, more, and more because you can never be satisfied. There's never enough people to tell you you're okay when you know that you're not. Trust me. Been there. I can save you some time. 
You look for those who will say, yes, go, go, it's good, it's good. The false prophets, the one who say, destruction isn't coming. We're all good, and there's no judgment, and God doesn't see what you're doing. It's all white lies. It's all false. God's only about making you happy all the time. You don't need to repent of sin. You need to repent that you thought that you were a sinner in the first place. They're lies. They are satanic deception. And these are the teachers that are being heaped up now. And I weep in my heart for those who are listening to them. The first kind of teaching is hard and adventurous and fruitful and joyful and peaceful and amazing and awesome. The second kind is ugly. Keeping up for yourself teachers that will tell you what your itching ears want to hear when you know you're a disaster and they're going to tell you good, be a disaster. Selfish, self-righteous, prideful, arrogant, and sad. Now, if we're trying to convince people which way they should go, it's got to be that first kind. But the second kind is the white lies kind. It's what we've been dealing with. It's easy, it's culturally trendy, and it's shiny, and it seems new, even though it is as old as the serpent in the garden. And it's being advertised, it's being promoted and sold to anyone who will listen in many different forms. Now, if you try to do the work of an evangelist and preach and speak and teach and live out and promote and advertise the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners and to set us free, then you are, according to them, according to the world, out of style, old-fashioned, unloving. And why are you trying to get people to believe what you believe anyway? That's not very tolerant. That's what you'll hear. But if you're on the other side and you promote and advertise and sell progressive Christianity, liberal views of the Bible, and so on, tolerance of everything except biblical Christianity, if you do that, you're encouraged. You're great. Way to go save those people. Save them from heaven. For a lot of people who are deconstructing their faith and refusing to take the scriptures of the word of God, they believe a lot of false things. And there are three issues that I think right now, particularly among the young, and when I say the young, I'm talking, young is different, right? 80 is the new 79, so... <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Honestly, though, when I say the young, I'm talking easily into their 50s. Okay? There are three things that I see that are sort of driving the train for people to want to find a way to reject the Christianity and the biblical Christianity that they grew up with. Three things. You know what they are? These are the things that make them want to get rid of Scripture. These are the things that make them do all those other things. One, the exclusivity of Christianity. The idea that Jesus is the only way. They can't deal with it. It rubs up against culture. And the idea that somehow everybody can be right, which is nonsensical as that idea is, people want it. Number two, the biblical view of sex. Oh, boy. No one's walked out yet. Good. Okay. <laughs> I want to hear what that Bible says. And number three is the problem of hell. The idea that people will go to hell. That God will actually do what he must do as a holy God. 
and that some people will not be with him because they choose not to. Those three things. I think that a lot of this newer group of folks who are deconstructing and leaving the faith, some of them were at one time relatively famous, although maybe not relatively strong, Christians. And they're following the path from deconstruction to destruction and into darkness and away from Jesus. They're walking that path because of those three doctrines. That's where it starts. They want to be able to fit in on those three things. And the rest of the stuff, I think, follows from that. They're going to change the Bible to be the way they like it, or they're going to throw the Bible away altogether because they cannot agree with the Scriptures on these issues. Now, Lord willing, today we're going to deal with the issues of exclusivity and the problem of hell. Later, we're going to deal, Lord willing, with the issue of biblical sexuality. Woo! Yeah! All right. Now, because I've already addressed these issues in the past exclusivity, and the problem of hell. We're actually going to watch a portion of a message I gave in 2016. Now, I'm old and fat now, but then I was not as old and fat. So I look pretty much the same. But let's go ahead and run that video, and then I'll be back up. All right, let's deal with the problem of hell. This is a big problem for us West Coast folks. Us West Coast folks do not like the problem of hell. We are kind of okay to allow for Jesus so long as he's not anything really like the Jesus of the Bible and he never talks about sin or judgment or hell, then we're, then we're cool with Jesus. Um, but in fact, the problem that we have with that is that about half of the stories that Jesus told revolved around justice, judgment, and hell. So... I think if we're going to be intellectually honest and just honest in general, we're going to have to deal with this, even though we don't like to. Um, I know that, that our, our thing is that we're all tolerant and that everyone is right, right? There can't be any judgment if everybody is right. We've talked about this issue. In week one on postmodernism, we talked all about this. So I'm going to try to keep this part of it short. But we've got to revisit some of those issues because the problem of hell has a couple different intertwined issues. And the first issue is the issue of exclusivism. Why is Jesus the only way to avoid hell? Or better said, is Jesus the only way to heaven? Because you can understand and deal with the problem of hell that some people go to hell, we first have to deal with the fact that Jesus says, I am exclusively the way to get to heaven. I'm exclusively the way to get to heaven. But it's offensive to say that, right? In our society, if you go and say it, if you don't believe me, head down to any college campus and say, I know the one way, and see if you don't offend somebody. Somebody is going to be offended by that. That's our postmodern mantra. Everybody's right. All stories are equally right, or all stories are equally wrong, whichever way you want to look at postmodernism, right? We talked about that. Here are a few quotes to make the point about people wanting everybody to be right. John Lennon says this, I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about why that doesn't make any sense. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, my position is that all the great religions are fundamentally equal. 
Now that one is interesting because, wait a second, which religions are the great religions? Which ones are the great ones? He's obviously excluding some religions. And whatever logic or reason he used to exclude some religions and pick the great ones, why couldn't he use that same logic and reasons, reason to pick between the great religions? We've got a problem there, trying to make everybody happy. Okay, I'll leave Gandhi alone. Let's move on to another uh, thinker, modern thinker, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she says this, One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. That's what Oprah says. Okay, If Oprah doesn't speak for our culture, I don't know who does. Right? Now here's the thing. You may find that you would prefer to believe what these people say than what I say. I would prefer probably to believe what they say than, than what I say, right? What I say is going to get you in trouble. It's going to offend people and whatever. And what they say includes everybody, and everybody's always happy with you. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you want. It only matters what's true. It only matters what's true. So you can want that all you want. You can want to believe in those things, that everybody, that all things are equal, that all religions are true, that all stories are the same. But that's not true. And so you have to follow the evidence to find out what is true. You've got to use your brain, your reason, your logic to figure this out. I had a friend in law school, and we had this issue. I'm not going to go through what the whole issue was. But we had this issue with some different students in law school and some issues that went on, and we had to figure out what the morally right thing to do was. And so from Scripture and from, from thinking about it and so on, we logically deduced what the right thing was to do. But the right thing to do that we had reasoned and logically deduced to was not the thing that my friend wanted to do. Emotionally, he wanted to handle it differently. The right thing to do was much harder. And he said to me, just because we figured it out, reasoned it out, or figured it out logically, does that mean that we have to do it? To which I said, yes. What other basis do you have to defend what you've done other than that you've reasoned to it reasonably. If you pick the thing that's unreasonable, that doesn't make any sense. God gave you a brain for a reason. you got to reason through this. So these guys are all saying, hey, these things are all the same, right? That's what Oprah says and Gandhi and John Lennon and a lot of people. But Jesus said something different about that. Here's what Jesus said about Jesus. John 14, 6. It's John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we've read that verse before and, and we're reading it again and I bet we will read it again because it is such a shocker to our culture. It's very exclusive. 
It says, I'm the way. That means all other ways aren't the way. That's what Jesus said about himself. So, if we want to know how to get to heaven, we've got to realize that the Christian answer is an exclusive one. It's an exclusive one. And it doesn't actually work, or it's not actually true, that all the great religions, or all the religions, or however you want to look at it, say basically the same thing. Some of what these religions say is true. We talked about that last week. Some of it's true. But the essential things are completely different. This is uh, what a guy named Houston Smith said. He's a professor at Berkeley, and he's a scholar on, on world religions. He says this, Beyond vague generalities, every religion has some form of the golden rule, religions differ in what they consider essential and non-negotiable. They differ in what they consider essential and non-negotiable. Religions aren't all saying the same things. They just aren't. They differ on what's essential. Okay. We talked about this issue before. We're going to talk about it again. We talked about the law of non-contradiction. If you remember with the law of non-contradiction, it says contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense and at the same time. Contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense at the same time. I cannot say that both I'm standing here and I'm not standing here. One of those things is true or the other one's true or neither one's true, but they cannot both be true, right? We talked about this. It's a law of reason. And because of this law of reason and the fact that, as Mr. Houston said, we have all these different religions saying completely different things on essential doctrines. They cannot all be true at the same time. They cannot all be true at the same time. So it's important to understand that that means it's not just Christianity that's exclusive. All religions are exclusive. In fact, all ideas are exclusive. The law of non-contradiction says that if I have an idea, its opposite is automatically excluded. But the tolerant person wants to continue to tell you that you can be right and that everybody else can be right at the same time. That you can all be right at the same time. And then when you say to the tolerant person, but wait a second, what about my idea of Christianity that says we can't all be right at the same time? Which the tolerant person will tell you, well, no, you're not right about that, which doesn't seem very tolerant to me, right? Everyone's right until they try to say that not everyone's right. And we run into a problem there. The bottom line is that Jesus claimed to be God. And he specifically claimed to be the only way to heaven. Now, you've got to do with that, with that claim, the one that we just read, what you would do with anyone else who claimed to be the only way to heaven. Anyone else who claimed to be the God, you'd have to run it through reason. You either have to think of them like you think of the lady down at the bus stop who mutters to herself and thinks she's the Queen of England, right? It's that kind of a statement. I'm God. I'm the only way. You've either got to think he's crazy like that, or you've got to think that he was basically evil and said this to try to get a bunch of people to follow him so he could have some sort of power, which doesn't fit with the story very well. Or you've got to believe that he's God, that he was right, that his claim to exclusive truth is true, that he is the only way to heaven, in which case you better bow down and worship him and follow him. But it's a choice that you have to make. You cannot get upset just because he says it's exclusive, just because he says he's the only way. Everybody says 
Their way is the only way. Even the people who say all ways lead are also exclusive. They exclude anybody who says anything other than that all ways lead to heaven. They're all exclusive. Everything's exclusive. The question is not, are you going to believe in something exclusive? The question is, which exclusive truth claim are you going to believe in? You're going to have to pick one. Jesus has laid it out for you. We cannot, as Christians, or some of us, continue to try to act as though everything's true. And we can all just get along. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want anybody to think we're weird because we make some exclusive claim about Jesus. We can't do that. We cannot sacrifice the truth just to get along. We can't because you're hurting people when you do that. What's the difference between that and enabling somebody? You're pretending like something's not true so they can continue to believe that whatever false thing they believe is true, which is pulling them further away from God and further towards wherever they're headed. So that's the issue of exclusivity. But the rest of the problem of hell still remains. How can a loving God allow people to suffer in hell? Let's first remember that we are not just talking about an idea in philosophy. We're talking about real people. It's not philosophical ideas that will go to hell. It's real people. And so it's a somber topic. I actually was going to tell a joke on a lawyer going to hell and all this stuff. And I realized, you know what? It's probably, although it's hilarious, it's probably not the mood that I want to set. Because this is a very serious issue. This is a very serious issue. For many people, they have no problem with the idea of hell, so long as we're talking about Hitler or other great evildoers in history. They have a problem when you start talking about hell and they have to think about their spouse or their child or grandma. Because those people weren't Hitler. They're all good people, right? That's where the problem of hell really comes down to it. I had a friend once who said something to me like, well, if grandpa's not in heaven, then there is no such thing as heaven. Now, one of the things that we have to understand about hell, because it's about real people, is that there are very strong psychological drivers that drive us to want to believe that hell is not real, that it doesn't exist, or that it's something less than what Scripture says that it is. Those drivers are psychological, and they're powerful. Powerful. So as we go through this, you have to try to stay as objective about the truth as you can. It's very difficult to do that. But if you come to the conclusion that hell is real and that maybe grandma or whoever, your friend, some person is there, the worst thing you can do is then decide that you're not going to follow Christianity because you don't like that doctrine and end up there yourself. That's the worst thing that you can do. Let's look at a story that Jesus tells. The story is in Luke 16, if you have your Bible. And we're going to start at verse 19. It says this, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, 
desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his source. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, there's a lot of stuff in that passage, and we could spend a lot of time on it. But let's just deal with the issues that it touches on the problem of hell. First of all, the first thing I want you to notice is that this rich man was actually in some ways kind of a nice guy. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers so his brothers don't end up there. So he's in hell, but we don't see somebody who's completely and utterly without thought of anyone else. He says, hey, send Lazarus to go tell my brothers so they don't end up here. But you'll notice at the same time, he wasn't a very nice guy to Lazarus. The first thing he asks is for Lazarus to come down there and dip his finger in water and touch his tongue. So he's treating Lazarus not very nicely. He wants him to come down to where he is, which means Lazarus would have to be in torment so that he could serve this guy again, this guy who for however long was sitting outside this guy's gate with the dogs licking his sores. Now he's finally happy, and this guy's like, hey, send him down here to hell. Let him experience a little torment so that he can make me feel better. So maybe he wasn't that nice of a guy. Notice also something very interesting. The rich man does not express any kind of repentance. Nothing. Abraham tells him that he had his good things and now he's in torment. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Let me, let me be in God's presence. You know, I don't want this. I give up myself. I surrender. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, have mercy on me, meaning I don't like the fact that I'm in torment. I'd like to not feel so bad, but never once does he give up his pride. Never once does he say, forgive me. Forgive me. I messed up. He doesn't say that at all. Lastly, I want you to notice what Abraham says to him at the end. At the end he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. We actually have one who's risen from the dead. But does everybody believe? No. See, 
You've got to understand this when we start to deal with the problem of hell. Because there's this kind of idea that hell is unjust. It's unjust because people don't really have a choice. People don't really know. But this guy was saying, hey, if you just send him back to tell my brothers, this, you know, Lazarus comes as a ghost, and he's like, ooh, and like, don't go to hell, and that these people will all do what's right. But Abraham knows, as we now know, that just because somebody rises from the dead does not mean that people will choose to follow and do what's right. The rich man chose hell. Remember last week we talked about um, God creating humans with free will. And we talked about how it's logically impossible that God would create someone with free will and at the same time that they wouldn't have free will. In other words, if he created them with free will, they have to be able to choose what they want to do. They have to be able to choose. And this rich man, he clearly chose to be in hell. He wasn't even asking to get out. Just cool his tongue down. I still don't want to surrender to God. I just don't want to be in so much torment. He just wanted a little mercy. A little mercy from what he was dealing with. And of course, Abraham says what is clearly true. There's a gulf between us and you. We can't be there and you can't be here. Now, is God unloving if he gives this rich man what he wants? What this rich man wanted, what he wanted was to do what he wanted. He didn't want to submit. If God gives him the right to not submit, does that make God unloving? You might object here and say, well, hang on a second, hang on a second. The rich man did not want to be tormented in hell. Well, that's undoubtedly true. It's undoubtedly true, but he didn't want to be with God either. And there wasn't any, any other place for him to go. But you then might say, well, if that's true and people get to be in heaven who love God, why did God make hell such a horrible place for people? Why did God prepare such a terrible place? Everything you hear about hell, I've never heard anything that makes it sound like it's a nice place to go. So why? If the PC want to reject God, why not just let them go somewhere not quite so bad? Well, we have to, we have to think about that. Did God make hell for humans? Let's remember what we read in John 14, just, just a little while ago. 14, 2, it said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. What did God prepare for humans? Heaven. He was preparing rooms for them in heaven. But what does it say about hell? In Matthew, Jesus is talking and he, and, he, and he discusses this moment where He's going to stand in judgment. There's going to be the sheep and the goats. And once the goats have judgment pronounced on them, he says this, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Who was hell prepared for? Hell wasn't prepared for man at all. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God had never had any desire. God had never had any desire for us to be in hell. In fact, the natural thing, the thing that he prepared was for us to be with him in heaven. That's what he prepared. He didn't prepare us for hell. It just happens to be the only place that there is other than with him. There's the presence of God and outside the presence of God. What is hell? Outside the presence of God. 
That's what it is. It's the only place there is outside of the presence of God. Those who choose to be like the devil will go to the place that God prepared for the devil. And now you're really upset because grandma wasn't the devil. She wasn't like the devil, was she? Well, what was the devil like? What we read in Scripture is that he was great, that he was made powerful and special. What was his sin? His sin was that he believed that he should be in charge. He wanted to be in charge. He was going to be in charge of himself. He wasn't going to submit to God. Now, you might say to yourself, well, Grandma wasn't like the devil, but you have been. And I have been. How many times have we said, no, no, I want to do what I want to do. I know that God's calling me to do this, but I want to do what I want to do. It's not because God doesn't love people that they go to hell. It's because he gave them free will, and they chose to be there. As C.S. Lewis says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. The people who are there want to be there, not because they want to experience torment or anything like that, but because they do not want to surrender to God. And you say, well, people aren't really that bad. This is one of the issues with the problem of hell. People aren't really that bad. They don't deserve that. They don't deserve it. But first of all, this is one of those issues where you cannot possibly know that that's true. You cannot possibly know what somebody deserves or doesn't deserve. Now, you take a guy like Hitler, who did great evil, killed six million plus people. He's a bad dude. I mean, pretty much the word Hitler is synonymous with bad dude, right? Fair enough. But here's the thing. The only way he was able to do all that evil is because he happened to have the power to be able to do it. See, if I wanted to do all that evil, I wouldn't be able to do it. Somebody would catch me long before I got to the number of people that he killed, Right? I couldn't do it. But that doesn't mean that my heart isn't just as evil. Jesus is so clear in Scripture that it's the heart that he's looking on. And you cannot see the heart. Your friend that you're worried about, that you think is a good person, that you're worried might go to hell, you don't know their heart. You don't know their heart. You don't know what they deserve. Jesus says if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you even get angry with your brother without cause, you're in danger of judgment. These are things that you and I can't see, but that he can see. We've all sinned. We've all sinned. Scripture is clear on that, and you know it's true. We've all sinned. We're constantly rejecting God and his plan for us. We're constantly being like Satan and not submitting and wanting to do it our way. Do we truly think that Christ should not exercise judgment on our rebellion? Dorothy Sayers was an author, and she talked about this issue. And this is what she says. There seems to be a kind of conspiracy to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. The doctrine of hell is not medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. 
Dorothy Sayers is right. One of the reasons she's right is that most of what we learn about hell, we learn from the words of Christ. Most of the, the hell talk is from Jesus. It'd be very difficult to do what we want to do in our modern minds and sort of reject the idea of hell and say, well, that part of Christianity, that's just a metaphor for things are going to be kind of bad on earth before we all get saved and we all get to go to heaven. But that's repudiating the doctrine that Jesus was very clear about. And when we repudiate doctrines of Jesus, we tend to repudiate Jesus. When we try to change the doctrine of judgment, we have a mess on our hands. Because without judgment, Christianity doesn't make sense. The world doesn't make sense. We know that judgment is necessary. Rich, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr said about the type of Christianity that wants to, to do those things, that wants to take away the doctrine of hell, that wants to take away the difficult stuff. He says this. It's a doctrine of, of this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's what he says about that kind of theology. Now, here's the problem. Here's why it doesn't work, because there is sin. And because there is sin, it's necessary that a righteous God has wrath and judgment. And because it's necessary that a righteous God has wrath and judgment, if he loves us, and he does, it was necessary that there was a cross to save us from his righteous wrath and judgment. We take that away. We take away Christianity. We take it away. But people kind of still get worked up and they say to the answer that people choose hell that, that no one would ever choose hell. No one would ever choose hell if they knew. If they really knew. So people don't really know. If they really knew, they wouldn't choose it. But there are people all over the place and the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been around for 2,000 years. And there is no person or very few people in America that have lived in America who have not had the opportunity to hear the truth of the gospel and either accept it or reject it. And I'm not a math major, but there are tens of thousands of people in this town, and not very many of them are here. The idea that people don't reject truth is nonsense. It's true that no one wants to choose hell. I agree with that. No one wants to choose a torment. But the idea that people don't choose to reject God and therefore have to be in hell because there's nowhere else for them to be, that's nonsense. I, had, I knew a woman who said she had been a Christian, she had sort of walked away from God, and she was living this wild life. She was asked about it, and she said, I know that for what I'm doing right now, I'll go to hell. But I want to do what I want to do so much that I don't care. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. And you might be thinking to yourself, that's crazy. That's the rarest of people. Almost no one would say something like that if they really believed there was a hell. They wouldn't do things that they knew would send them there. There are tons of people like that. There are tons of people like that. They want to do what they want to do. They want to do what they want to do. You see, here's the thing. It's not that people are in hell because God doesn't love them. God loves them. He provided his son as a sacrifice for their salvation, but they don't accept him. 
When I was in law school, we learned about contracts, and a contract requires an offer and acceptance. Okay? I make an offer, and you've got to accept that offer on those terms. Anything other than an acceptance of my offer is considered a counteroffer. You guys are all going to be able to be lawyers here soon, but here's the thing. If I, if I don't accept the offer on its terms, I've rejected it. I've rejected it. The only way to accept an offer is to accept it exactly on its terms. That's the way the law of contract works. That's the way this works. Jesus says, I died for you. Forgiveness is, is available for you because I love you. And you can either say, yes, I accept your forgiveness. I surrender to you. And then you're with God. Or you say, no, I don't surrender. I don't accept. I don't need your forgiveness. I'm in charge of me. And if that's where your heart is, you can be the nicest person in the world in many other ways for many reasons. Maybe you like the fact that people like you because you're nice. Who knows why you're nice? But if inside your heart you're rejecting God, he's made an offer that you're not accepting, that you're rejecting, what do you want him to do? What do you want God to do? This is what C.S. Lewis says. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs? To give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. This is not a game that God is playing where he makes you think that you're okay. Then you die unexpectedly and he's like, ah, I got you going to hell. That's not what this is. That's not what this is. You've got to understand that God is righteous. He is righteous. God is love. He is also righteous and holy. He can't have sin exist with him. But he knew when he created us that we would choose to do what was wrong. So he chose to come and be the sacrifice for us so that we could be with him. Because otherwise we could not be with him because as much as he loves us, he's holy. But he provided that way. It's our choice whether we accept it. And if we reject it, that's hell. That's hell. I'm not trying to scare you with hell. There are probably churches who do the whole brimstone thing and try to scare you. I'm not trying to scare you. It doesn't work. I hate horror movies, okay? I I do not like them. But when I was younger, I decided that I would try to watch the movie Psycho. So I watched this movie, and there's this very creepy guy, and there's the girl, and she's like in the shower or whatever, and he comes in with a knife. Okay, that was some scary stuff for me, okay? I do not like movies like that. It scared the fire out of me. But you know what? I didn't stop taking showers. I forgot about it eventually, right? I mean, it was a couple years I didn't take a shower, but that was no big deal. I mean, I'll eventually take a shower again. No, it, I didn't stop taking showers. Fear only does so much until you can forget about what the fear is. And you move on. If all I tried to do in here was give you fire and brimstone and you're going to burn, you got to turn or burn. That might work today. And you might come up here and be like, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to get my fire insurance card. That's not what following Jesus is about. That's not my point. That's not my point. My point is to defend the loving nature of God within the doctrine of hell. That's all. That's all we're doing here. Okay? This is the truth. I'm simply trying to tell you the truth. 
that God died for you, that you can accept that and be with him in heaven. It's the most natural thing in the world that you would be with him. He created you to be with him. But if you reject that, you reject him. And you cannot reject him and be with him. You can't do both. And neither can anybody that you know or anybody that you're worried about. Okay? You may be like those right now on Palm Sunday who cheered Jesus on as he came into the city. But when he turned out not to be the Jesus Christ that they wanted him to be, they rejected him. This doctrine for you, like I said, there are strong psychological drivers. You may be saying to yourself right now, this is not a doctrine that I can live with. I cannot deal with the fact that God will be sending people to hell, and specifically that God may be sending people that I know or that I love to hell. And so you may reject him. I'm begging you not to do that. Do not assume you know more than God about what is good and what is right. In Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more? Does God know what's good? Does he know what's good? Of course he does. You don't know better than he does. You want to believe that there's no hell. And so some people in the last ditch effort say, but if the people had enough chances they had enough chances, they'd choose. They would choose God. C.S. Lewis says, I believe that if a million chances were likely to do good, they would be given. Finality must come sometime, and it does not require a very robust faith to believe that omniscience knows when. What he's saying is this. You can say that, the, that everyone would come if they were given enough chances, but the fact is, is that it's not true. There are those who will reject God no matter how many times they're given the opportunity. How many opportunities have you had? How many? Every second of every day of your life. How many times have you rejected him? Every second of every day of your life. What makes you think that if you were given an eternity of chances, you would change it anymore? Because you're in torment? You've been in torment here. There's plenty of bad things. They didn't make you turn to God. They didn't make you submit yourself and give up your pride and follow him. What makes you think other people would? And then some people say, what about the people who have never heard about Jesus? What about those people? It's not fair that they would go to, to hell. Here's the thing. No one is, who has truly repented of their sin and who has sought after God will be in hell. Jesus knows how to reveal himself. There are Muslims, regularly you hear stories of Muslims in the Middle East, having dreams and visions of Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is. They have dreams and visions of Jesus and come to Christ. He knows how to take care of his children. He knows how to take care of people. He will not leave anyone without a choice. Everyone will have a choice. They'll know what the choice is. Nobody's going to get the gotcha. Nobody's going to get the gotcha, okay? But this question isn't about other people. Don't, don't question God on the person in the deepest, darkest jungle who's never heard of Jesus and be mad because that person's going to hell. They're only going to hell if they didn't choose Jesus. He'll reveal himself to him. You've got to worry about you. What are you going to choose? You have heard the gospel. You're not in the deep, dark jungle. You've heard it today. What are you going to do about it? And if you're so worried about other people, which you should be, what are you doing? If you believe that there's a hell... 
that people are going to go to it. What are you doing for your neighbor, for your friend, for your grandma, for whoever, that you're worried is going to hell? Is it on your mind? Do you care? Bring them here. This is where they'll hold the truth. One last quote from C.S. Lewis, and we'll, and we'll stop. He says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. This is uh, one of the most difficult topics that we study as believers. I want to make something really clear. No one listening to this message has to go to hell. It's good news if you'll turn to Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Simple. Yes, there is a hell. Those who want to argue their way out of it. God could never, he wouldn't. That's just arrogance. Thinking that you can make God like you because you think you wouldn't make a hell. Here's the thing. You're not holy. You're not perfect. You don't know. God has said, Christ has said clearly that those who will not follow him will be apart from him. But that doesn't have to be you. The glorious thing is not hell. The glorious thing is that that's where we would all be, but for the fact that God himself provided the way. Again, what are you asking him to do? To provide a way that you don't have to be in hell? He's done it. Himself. God, the creator of the universe, became a man. Died for you. Rose again. That's the truth. It's not old-fashioned. It is the center of of the universe. It is the center of reality. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is what everything is balancing on. It is a glory that we will be singing about for ages after ages to come in eternity. And you can be there doing that rather than asking for people to dip their tongue in water, dip their finger in water, not their tongue, their finger in water and put it on your tongue. That's supposed to be all serious and then I, you know... And with COVID, like, you can't do that, right? Like, you can't get me started. Don't leave today not knowing Jesus. Because you don't know when you're going to go. You've heard the gospel. If you had never heard it before, congratulations, you heard it today. Now, every second of your life that you are not following him, you are rejecting. And he's been very clear about where you go when that's the case. But not because that's what he wants. And we certainly don't want it. And you certainly don't want it. So follow Jesus and have joy. Is it going to be hard? So hard. So hard. So joyful. So peaceful. So adventurous. So fruitful. So real. Can you say that about where you are right now? 
because you can with Jesus. If you know you've been rejecting God, if you know that you've been going your own way and doing your own thing, you understand that you need to be a Christ follower, you need forgiveness for your pride, for your sin, for your rebellion against God, today is the day. Do not wait. Now, we're going to pray in just a second. And then we're going to sing a song. And during that time, I'm going to ask Randy, Dave Vanderplug, any other elders to go back out to the prayer room, which is just right through these doors. You just go right past the bathrooms. There's a prayer room right there. You don't know Jesus. You want to know him. You want to be saved. You want to, you want to not be a person who set aside for destruction. Today's the day. Please don't wait. Jesus is waiting for you. We're all here ready to welcome you into the kingdom, into his church, to love you. Today's the day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that we don't have to go to hell. God, I'm sure it breaks your heart a thousand, a billion, innumerable times more than it breaks mine. And I know that it breaks my heart. And yet it's so easy to know you. And the opportunity is there. As you're drawing people to yourself, Lord, right now or, or online or people that might listen to this another time, Lord, as you're drawing them to yourself, as your Holy Spirit is working in their hearts, Lord, I pray they would respond to you. That they would lay down their pride and their arrogance and their rebellion and their shame and their sin and accept the perfect grace that you've offered us through your death. God, we want to see people come to know you. Right now, here today. That they would make a decision. Right now, here today. Not ashamed, not worried about it, ready to go forward. Like a man or like a woman. With the strength to stand up and say, yes, I'll follow Jesus. Not just because I don't want hell, but because Jesus died for me. And because he knows what's good and he knows what's right. I love you, Jesus. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are Lord. We will follow you. I pray that others would choose to do the same. In your name, amen.